Good morning again. Um, I'm Charles Garland. Um, if you weren't here for the announcements, and it's Tucson, so I figure most of you weren't here for the announcements. Uh, uh, we sang uh, Mary's song during Christmas about the proud being scattered in their thoughts, and then last night the Patriots lost. And so the progress of redemption goes on. <laughs> I like it when he's not here to defend himself. <laughs> well, Steve wanted me to uh, talk today about the importance of uh, congregations paying their ministers well. And, but I, I told him no. And, uh, <laughs> of course, he didn't. <laughs> I want to talk about something that's a fun thing to talk about in this church uh, because I'm asking you to take seriously something that this church notoriously takes seriously, and uh, which is the seriousness of God. And um, you want to take it for granted that Christians will feel the seriousness and weightiness of God, uh, a sense of reverence, at least a desire for a sense of reverence in their worship and their lives as Christians. And uh, more than any church I know, this church pursues that and has that as an aspiration and uh, makes me really like this church and love your minister. But uh, that's what I want us to talk about today. It's a very broad theme, the glory of God, and it's a vague theme in some ways. So I'll try to explain some of what we're talking about. But uh, I noticed something encouraging with uh, New Year's resolutions that Christians make. You know, most, most of our resolutions are trying to fix ourselves and get ourselves better and, you know, the ideal, desirable uh, version of us. But um, I've noticed that most Christians, when they start to think about what they would like to see change in their lives in a coming year, for instance, uh, with regard to God, don't so much talk about doing better for Him or trying to give more or serve more, but most Christians, when they think about what they really want, say, I want uh, more reality in my life with Him Himself, not just what He can do for me or what I can do for Him, but I want to know Him. So usually you'll hear things like, I want, to, I want to spend time reading the Bible this year. I want to spend uh, uh, more luxurious time devotionally this year than I'm used to. And uh, I think that's pretty encouraging. You know, there aren't that many things that we do instinctively well as Christians. And this is one where you think that is what we're supposed to want. We're supposed to want Him, uh, not just what He can do for us or what we can do for Him. To have a greater sense of His reality in our lives, which is... Um, often described in the Bible as His glory, an experience of the weightiness of God. Um, and so that's what I want us to talk about today, uh, kind of negatively, because it is my way. Uh, what problems happen for us when we take God lightly as well? And so our text is short, and we're going to draw a lot on the Exodus 33 text that Mark read earlier um, as we talk through this. But... Um, Isaiah 42, 8, just a single verse, and let me pray for us before we read. Father, the uh, things that you have us here to think about and talk about today are uh, not under our control. Um, to have a weighty experience of you, to have a sense of your glory and reality and weight in our lives is not something we can produce just by wanting it. And we don't even want it very much. So would you help us? Would you come and open our hearts and our eyes to you and let us meet with you? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord and that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And this is the Word of God. It's absolutely true and it's given to us because He loves us. Right? So, um, you know this in this church that in the Middle Ages, when the church was going through pretty serious periods of corruption, uh, the reformers protested against that corruption, and their protest centered around these five mottos that uh, are the only Latin that most of us know besides e pluribus unum. You know? <laughs> and uh, some of them were pretty understandable. There was corruption and authority in the church and the way leadership was working, and so the reformers said, the scripture alone, uh, sola scriptura, is our uh, authority, our, the one voice to which we have to hearken is God's voice speaking in the scripture. And that was understandable. Um, doctrinally, there was a lot of fuzziness about the grace of God and who actually accomplishes our life with God and who gets credit for that. And so, you know, solus Christus and soli gratia, I never get the uh, Latin endings right anyway. But, you know, the idea was... We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, and that these things are pillars of our faith that have to be asserted and kept uh, pristine. And that's the nature of the protest of the Protestants in the Middle Ages and is still for the most part. But the last one they used was uh, solideo gloria, glory to God alone. And that's kind of an odd one because you think, who, who's against that, right? Um, I don't know any Roman Catholics that would say, oh, that Solideo Gloria business, <laughs> you know, I can't stand that. I mean, I would think most any Roman Catholic would say, yeah, we're, we're as in on that as you are. And, um, and rightly so, really. Um, I think the Reformers used it because they were saying when we, when we have a man-centered faith that talks so much more about our works than God's grace and when leaders uh, get... Uh, preeminent in the church in a way that sort of supersedes Jesus's place, then God is robbed of glory that's rightly his. But it's not just a Roman Catholic problem. I mean, this is, this is the Christian problem always, that um, we tend to draw God's glory away from him. We tend to give it to other things pretty instinctively. And God's glory rests lightly on us as much as Protestants as it does with Catholics or Orthodox. Um, maybe more so now. Uh, the idea that God rests lightly on the church seems like a very specific criticism of American Protestantism. Right? So the deal is you either are going to give glory to God or you're going to give that glory to something else or someone else. And our problems come when we do that. And so I want us to talk today first about what God's glory is and then what happens when God's, uh, God rests lightly on the church and what happens when God rests lightly on individual Christians. Um, so that's kind of where we're going um, with the hope that we will want to have and experience a greater sense of God's reality and substance in our lives, right? which is, you know, surely why you're here, right, <laughs> is that you'd like there to be reality in your experience of God and your relationship with God. So let's talk first about what glory is, because it's a nebulous kind of term. It's a common term. You know, all through Christmas, Gloria in excelsis Deo, we sing like the angels, glory to God in the highest, but glory is vague. Um, it's not like other characteristics of God that you might name. Like you could say, God, 
um, is described by love, that he's absolutely loving in all that he does, or that he's absolutely just in all that he does. But glory isn't so much a characteristic as it is a... It's like a, the effect of who God is. It's like God's character on display. And when the Bible talks about it, it usually you get metaphors. The word itself in the Hebrew is, is the word for weight, that God's glory is his weight, it's his substance, um, his importance. And when the biblical writers uh, try to describe their experience of God's glory, they almost always use uh, light as the term, like the pillar of cloud and fire in the wilderness wandering after they came out of Egypt. And when God's glory came into the tabernacle, holy of holies, and the temple, holy of holies, it was light, right? And when His glory departed in Ezekiel, you know, it's, it's this overwhelming, you know, substantial, intimidating light that left. And so um, weight, substance, you know, God's character on display, those are the kind of things you're getting at when you try to talk about God's glory. Um, and when he says here in verse 8, he says, I am the Lord. It's the, you know, like in my version, it's the small caps, Lord. It means I am Yahweh, the name that God revealed to Moses in this encounter at Mount Sinai that we read about earlier. I am the Lord. This is my name. And this is what he revealed to Moses when Moses asked for this deep experience of him, this weighty experience. I want to see your glory. Uh, this is what happened. It's an interesting, interesting prayer and an interesting, fascinating conversation that you have between God himself and Moses in the situation because the context was that Moses had been on Mount Sinai and it stayed for quite a long time. And even though they could see this completely intimidating cloud of fire and thunder on the top of the mountain, uh, they still uh, lost heart or lost hope and decided they needed help that Moses might not ever come back to give them. And so Aaron built them the golden calf, you know, which seemed like a good idea at the time. And uh, But, you know, this is very provocative to God and to Moses. And, you know, so when Moses comes back down the mountain and God says, I've had it with a stiff-necked people and I'm not going with you. And he's, he makes this strange offer to Moses. He says, go, um, take the people into the promised land. Um, I'll do what I promised. I'll give you the land, but I'm not going with you. That presence of God that they'd experienced in the, in the cloud and the pillar. He said, I'm not going to go with you. Now, that's the best religious deal anybody's ever been offered. God will give you his benefits and his help, but you don't have to deal with him. Like this is the this is the perfect religion, right? Where you get God's help, but none of the intimidating personal presence, none of the you know criticism and correction that comes to us, none of the life adjustments, uh, none of the being afraid and falling on your face. Uh, you just get his stuff, and you don't have to know him. And uh, I think most of us in most honest moments would have totally taken the deal. Uh, but Moses said no. He said, I, I, don't, I don't want any of that if, if we don't have you, which is a um, pretty remarkable thing for him to have said. I'm not going to settle for this. Instead, I, I want you. I want you to show me your glory. I don't want to live just under your favor. I want you. 
And uh, it's, a, it's a very beautiful prayer. We, we sing some things kind of like Moses' prayer at times. I don't, do you guys ever sing that uh, song, or did you open the eyes of my heart? I don't know, we used to sing that. Open the eyes of my heart, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. I want to see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. Well, that's kind of what Moses is asking for here, right? I want to see your glory. And God hears that beautiful prayer, hears that song and says, Are you insane? (laughs) Of course not. Of course you can't see my glory. Of course I'm not going to open the eyes of your heart. That would be totally devastating for you. I would consume you if that happened. Um, Don't be ridiculous. You can't see my glory. Even Moses, who's been on the mountain, God says, you can't. It would consume you. Um, But he does this very kind thing. He says, I can't show you my glory, but I can show you part of my goodness. Part of my goodness. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock, he says, and... uh, and I'll pass by you, and you can't see my face, but I'll show you sort of the back parts of my glory, of my goodness, not my glory. Just, um, and even that, you can't see full on because of who I am. Um, you, you've got to know who you're dealing with here when you talk about God and seek to have some connection to God. He says, of, of course you can't. Um, now, we'll come back to this in a few minutes and and talk about, um, the radical difference that Jesus Christ has made in our dealings with God. But the idea here is taking God seriously and having a sense of reverence for Him um, is really the substance of the idea of His glory, um, that we don't traipse into His presence unmediated ever, uh, that He's not safe to be around us. He's not safe. And having a sense of reverence and a desire even for a sense of reverence isn't the most common experience of Christians and churches in the world, um, right? Greater comfort and being more at ease in God's presence is usually our primary motif, right? So let's talk about what happens if we don't have a sense of reverence. If, when, when God rests lightly on churches, what happens to them? And the short answer, it's not exhaustive, is that we become very people-centered instead of God-centered. You know, we start um, thinking differently about our leaders, for instance. This happened in the Middle Ages. As God rested lightly upon the church, uh, the leaders took on more and more uh, weight and ballast themselves, right? The, the priesthood uh, took on uh, sort of a usurping role uh, between God and His people, uh, more exaggerated than we've seen at other times. Saints took on uh, much greater importance for people in their piety uh, than God Himself at times. Um, because if you're not going to give the glory to God, it's going to go somewhere. And it usually goes to somebody else. But also, uh, the church began to think much more about its own piety and devotion and obedience than about what God has done for us in His mercy. You know, becoming man centered usually means becoming moralistic. Um, let's, let's think about what we're going to do for God, and that's a bigger deal than what He's done for us. Um, moralism's funny, though, because at first it feels like if you're going to be really serious morally in the church, that you're the ones taking God seriously the most, right? We're not the compromisers. We toe the line. 
You know, we, we insist that God's law be kept, and obedience is important, and we're really serious about obedience, and which is the right thing to do, but almost always drifts over into uh, what moralism does, which is a uh, dilution of God's law, right? Because if you want to say, we're going to be the stalwarts, we're going to be the ones that hold the line morally, um, you realize pretty quickly that God's law demands more of you than you're able to give, and holding the line morally uh, just convinces you of your guilt because you know no matter how much you do, you don't, your obedience doesn't meet the standard of God's law. And so moralism usually winds, we dilute down God's law and then we create other laws we can keep. Now, it's easy to poke fun from the vantage point of history at the church in the Middle Ages for doing this. You know, there was a lot of moralistic foolishness in the Middle Ages, but there's a lot of moralistic foolishness now, too. But the point is, when you take glory from God, God's grace diminishes because the way grace works in our lives, everything that we have from God and all of our life with Him depends on what Jesus has done for us by His grace so that all the credit for our life with God goes to Him. If you ever read, if you're familiar with Ephesians 1, when it describes what God has done to rescue us, it says it's, he says several times in there, this is done to the praise of His glory or to the praise of the glory of His grace. So that the more we emphasize that everything we have is gift from God, the more credit He gets and the less... Uh, impressed we become with ourselves, right? So Middle Ages, yeah, those guys, they didn't have it together in these ways. They were very man-centered, people-centered. But the modern church is uh, their rival, surely, in these matters, right? We're, we're, God rests lightly on us as a church, too. So we have problems with our leaders, too. We don't pray to our leaders, but we, we indulge in uh, celebrity star minister uh, ideas that are pretty foreign to the Bible, um, but make a lot of sense to us. Like if you could have a hot shot preacher, you know, you just know your church is going to go great. Right? That's an American truism. It's not a very easy thing to defend biblically, right? But we feel that way. We put emphasis on our our leaders because God rests lightly on us, and we become moralistic as well. We may not be insisting people go on pilgrimages and you know climb steps on their knees to show their piety. Our our moralism is a softer, gentler kind. You know, we just talk about kind of life coaching as an approach to Christianity. You know, tips for more successful living, how Jesus can make your business go better, that kind of thing. But all of which are signs that God's uh, glory rests lightly on us and we're looking uh, for something instead. We're just looking for a way that God might make our lives uh, be more effective or more pleasant because He rests lightly on us. And if you're uh, in the industry as a preacher, you know, you start to think of church as a business and you think that the thing that will cause my prayers to be answered and my church to grow and God's kingdom to come is if I can copy best practices from other people or you know, at least get a little cooler, you know. And if I could do that, then, man, our church would really start to pop and it would really grow. And then, and I don't know, I guess people would think well of me. <laughs> but uh, whatever the motives are, I know the appeal is strong. When God rests lightly on us, we look for other things to make it happen. At least I know I do. So what do you want for Desert Springs? I mean, I hear a lot of talk from Steve and from others of you when I talk about 
wanting to reach out to this neighborhood, uh, to see people coming into the faith and growing here. Um, what's your hope for how that's going to happen? Because um, I think about this, our little church plant. Um, I like how Mark said we planted that church in 2017. I thought, planted? <laughs> Not yet. It's a... <laughs> We started plowing. I, um, I hope I'm not supposed to be through. The, uh, but what do you, I always think, well, what's going to happen? What do I want to have happen? And I think, well, if we could get it right, if we could do church right, everything would pop and it would go well. And is there anything in the Bible that makes you think that's true? You know, I, like, and when I stop to think, I don't think. What I really want is for there to be a sense of the reality of God in my life and in the church's life and that that would be magnetic and that would be compelling to us and to the people who might come in. Um, so doing something like you do, because I know uh, Steve insists on it, is in a worship service, you try to have an eye single to the glory of Jesus, which is uh, maybe the most poetic phrase in our book of church order, uh, that worship is to have an eye single to the glory of Christ, that what we want to do when we come together to worship is honor Jesus. And experience him. So you have song lyrics that are weighty and difficult uh, because God is weighty. <laughs> and um, to try to sing about him takes rearing back and bringing some substance to it. But it may not be the coolest thing to do, right? Um, when you read scripture, you ever hear anybody say, oh man, you got to go to that church. You should hear their scripture reading. Very cool. <laughs> You know, I don't know how you read Scripture cool. Um, or the sac- do the sacraments cool. Whoa, their Lord's Supper. I mean, so, you know, if we do the things we're told to do when we come to worship, when we preach, which is certainly not cool, even the Bible says preaching's not cool. You know, it says it's a terrible way to communicate, but God uses preaching so that He'll get glory instead of us. And... Uh, so you think, what's God's plan for having the, the church thrive? It's a greater sense of who He is and who is and what His glory is, and having that rest on us with some substance. That's our real hope, um, not just doing it better. And if you talk about God's grace and our need for God's grace instead of how to improve your life with tips, well, that's that's never going to be cool. All right, so you remember in uh, in First Corinthians fourteen. Sorry to jump around with the scripture references today, but um, they were arguing about tongues and prophecy. A lot of people had a gift of tongues in that time, and the, and Paul was saying, "But look, I, if you if you're speaking in tongues and somebody comes in, one of your neighbors comes in, they're going to think you're nuts, you know. And but if everybody's prophesying, if you're talking about uh, God and the gospel, that." People will have the thoughts of their hearts revealed and they'll say, God is surely among you and they will fall down and worship Him. And uh, that's as close as you get to a strategy <laughs> in the New Testament for uh, how to make church attractive. is to take God seriously, uh, to have His weight rest on us. So what about individual Christians? If, if uh, God rests lightly on us... Uh, what kind of flows and follows from that? And the answer there is kind of that you, you're going to give glory to someone or something. The glory that belongs to God that he says, I don't give my glory to another 
Well, we do, right? We give his glory to another because we're built for glory. It's going somewhere. We're going to worship something. We're going to consider something substantial. We're going to hope and trust in something. And if it's not God, then we'll put our weight on something else. So um, usually what that means is um, often, I guess for most people, there's some, some spirituality involved in uh, looking for glory elsewhere. We don't want to, most people don't just want to be a-religious. Um, but what you usually do is if God rests lightly on you, you wind up having a very light uh, experience of religion as well. You start saying things like, well, I'm not really religious, I'm just spiritual, which I think means I just make up my own God because I find that more appealing, right? In other words, I don't, I don't submit myself to God. I pick and choose uh, from a religious cafeteria to find something that suits me. And, uh, but that's a very flimsy view of God. And, you know, the atheists of the last century made the clever point that if you, if you make up a God, a projection of what you think God ought to be, that uh, that's not God. <laughs> you know, it's a pretty obvious point. That's not really God if you made him up. Right? And uh, so a light spirituality or a uh, just kind of a, a spirituality of the variety that Moses turned down. Like where your whole prayer life is just a list. I want this, 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 amen. You know, it's, a, it's not a sense of God's weightiness or connection to him in any kind of personal way, any kind of experiential way, any kind of scary way. It's just a, it's just a list, a genie approach to God. Or you get superstitious. You know, if God rests lightly on you, you start to get afraid of everything else instead of being afraid of him. That happened pretty hard in the Middle Ages especially, but go to a funeral sometime and see what kind of uh, things people will say (laughs) about life and the world and the afterlife, and you'll think, hmm, God rests lightly on us, and people have become very superstitious. Um, So mostly what we do, though, is not religious with this. When God rests lightly on us, we just put our weight down on other things in life, love, Romantic love is what will complete me. It's what will make my life satisfying and fulfilled, which is something only single people say, right? <laughs> you know? Um, I mean, Julie, she says it. But, the, uh, <laughs> but like, you know how our culture does it. It's like I'm, the thing that will satisfy me, that will make me whole in my life, that will give me you know, weight, substance, is romantic love or money. If I have enough money, I'll be okay, I'll be admirable, I will uh, be solid if I have money um, or if I achieve a lot. You know, we just we put our weight down on these other things because God doesn't seem serious to us. Something's got to bear the weight of our lives. And so we look at the things that do seem serious to us, like money and romantic love and achievement because those things seem serious to everybody around us. I mean, you know that those things can't bear the weight you put on them but what else are you going to do? Ask to see God's glory? <laughs> Probably not. Right? Probably not. But when, you, when achievement becomes everything in your life, you get real thin-skinned about your achievements. Right? Uh, when romantic love becomes you know, the ballast in your life, then you get super jealous and insecure, and uh, you start stalking people, and you know, you, all kind of weird things come out 
when you put a whole lot of weight down on romantic love that it can't bear. You know that. Um, the thing is we're made to be substantial as human beings uh, because of the glory of God in our lives. That we have like moon glory. God has sun glory, but we have moon glory. And to, be, to have His glory shine on us is what makes us truly human and truly substantial ourselves. And if we don't have a strong sense of His weight and glory in our lives, then we're going to have to find ballast for our lives somewhere else. And so we do. Nick Hornby wrote about this. He's not a Christian, uh, but he was talking about feeling this lack of, this, this flimsiness that comes, the shallowness that comes when God isn't weighty in our lives. And he says, you need as much ballast as possible to stop you floating away. Like people around you, things going on. I've got to get more stuff, more clutter, more detail in here because at the moment I'm in danger of falling off the edge. I've got to get more ballast in my life. I'm, I'm going to float away. We're made to thrive with God's glory shining upon us. It doesn't mean when we say glory to God alone that you can never, that you can never give glory to people. We're supposed to give glory to people. God made people glory us. Right, But not sun glory, moon glory. We don't give God's glory to people. You can clap for somebody sometimes. It's okay. You know, you're not a heretic. You can congratulate someone. You can say, the music was beautiful and lovely and thank you. And Annie doesn't have to say, it's just Jesus. <laughs> you know, so you, she can say thank you too, right? I mean, we're not, it's not like we're supposed to be uh, blind to human glory. It's just that human glory isn't its real glory unless it's reflected glory, unless it comes from God's glory shining on us. But do you remember the problem from Exodus? What happens if you have God's glory shining on you? You get consumed, right? (laughs) That's what you need, but you can't have it because you can't handle it. It would consume you. But what have we been talking about during Advent and Christmas? John 1, the Word, who was God Himself, who was with God from the beginning, by whom all things were made. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. And our New Testament reading, God who said, light, who said, let there be light, shine into darkness, has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what Moses was told, you can see a little bit of my goodness. Christians are told because of what Jesus has done for us, you can see my face. You can see my face, which is the thing that you most need in your life is to be humanized and made substantial and whole by an experience of the glory of God because everything that would have caused God to consume you has been taken away by the mediation of Jesus Christ. Everything that God would have been provoked by, incensed by, disappointed by in you, ashamed of in you, has been taken away by Jesus Christ. So that now you can stand, it says in Jude, in the presence of His glory without fault, and with great joy. Now, if God rests heavily on you, those are unbelievable words. 
that you can be in the presence of the glory of God without fear and with great joy. That would be delightful. Is that what you want for your church? I think it is already, more than, more than I would assume anywhere else I know that I could preach, um, that this is what you want. And so I'll pray for you. And if you'd pray for Midtown and for me to have this experience in the new year too, a greater sense of the weightiness and glory of God. Now let's pray. Father, it seems strange to me that Moses, with the depth of his devotion to you, could ask to see your glory and not be able to, but that you say yes to people like us through Jesus. And we pray that you would cause uh, us to have great thoughts of your Son and that you would rest heavily in our lives and that we would feel what it means to see your glory without uh, fear and with great joy. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.